Hello, legends, and welcome to Real Estate Leaders and Legends, a California Association of Realtors podcast, where we're dropping leadership knowledge. One legend at a time. You're about to learn the secrets of success from some of the brightest and biggest in the industry. I'm Sarah Sudachan. And I'm Emily Horn, and we are podcasting from Studio CAR here in Los Angeles. Today, we're thinking outside the box, actually out of the state, Sarah. All the Um, way. Yeah, really far to the East Coast to get a creative perspective from Joe Rand. He's the Chief Creative Officer for Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Rand Realty. Joe and his family, and I mean his whole family, run one of the largest companies in the tri-state region, closing over $2.5 billion, that's billion Billion. with a B, (laughs) annually. And Joe wrote the book on how to be a great real estate agent. Literally, that's the title of his new book. (laughs) And a follow-up from his first book, Disruptors, Discounters, and Doubters. A great read for anyone in the real estate business who wants to think strategically and work smarter in our ever-changing business landscape. Joe shared a lot of his philosophies with us. But before we get into that, allow us to disrupt you with... The Lead-Off. And the lead-off is what we're working on or thinking about this week, inspired by today's interview. When Joe wrote his Disruptors book, he actually needed to be disrupted himself. That's right. Writing the book was a long-time goal. And like a lot of us, Joe had his dream sitting on the back burner for a long time. And then what he realized was that the hardest part was just getting started. So, Sarah, what's one goal you've been meaning to get after that you haven't? Well, you know... Joe inspired me what has been kind of not even on the back burner because it's not even a huge goal, but it's something it's a very lofty goal, right? But it's something that I've been wanting to do um, is write a book. So I need need to get like it. So, so, okay. So I'm going to first on a goal. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that's a goal. You got to write that down. Yeah. And so I'm going to give you some, like an example of maybe a first step you can take to help you get started. And then I can share a, a goal with you. So, I would say, what if you block 10, 15 minutes a day to start, to just start mapping out what you'd want to write about? Oh my God, that's a great idea. Actually, my kids do mind maps. They do What's these, mind mapping? Well, that- it's, it's, I don't know if it's called mind map, but it's, they do a diagram uh-huh. of all of the things they want to accomplish in their essay. And so that's a great suggestion. I'm going to start that. Okay, good. Okay. Yay. Right. That, Yay. Yay. That's Who knows one. if I'll ever write the book, but it is a goal. But, but now if you, it's goal. I think it's like Joe said, just get started. And that's so if right. you can just get started, you can never, you never know where it's going to go, right? That's right. So Emily, what's one goal you've been meaning to get to? Mine is not as ambitious as yours, <laughs> but it's, um, it is important to me. Clearly not that important because I haven't done it, but um, it's just cleaning out my closet. It's just a disaster and it makes me sad when I go in there. (laughs) It doesn't spark joy. It does not spark joy. (laughs) So it sparks negativity. I think one thing you can do is block out a day. Mm hmm. If you, can you do that? I can do that. You if I plan ahead, I could. Block out a day and I'm going to take a page out of The Art of Tidying Up. Marie Kondo, Love who her. I'm obsessed, we are obsessed with. Yeah, we've with. talked about her. Um, she says to put pull everything out of your closet. So then you start with a clean slate and you put a, everything on the bed and you keep only what sparks joy. 
I should get paid for this, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's Marie, Marie's idea. So we're probably just plagiarizing. I mean, you know, yeah. But um, yeah, I think that's doable. I think it's doable. I think setting aside the time and being intentional about it is a key to what you're suggesting. And check well, back with me. I'm going to do it. Keep yeah. me accountable. We're going to check next time. I'm going to check about your writing. Yes, please okay. do. Right. So with that, let's get into Joe's interview. Let's do it. Welcome, Joe. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Joe, there's somebody really important that um, inspired you in this business and kind of pulled you in, right? That's your mom. Yeah. Can you tell yeah, us? My mom st- yeah, God, she started the company uh, 35 years ago, ran it for about half that time. My brothers got into it with me. Uh, they actually got into it and then I joined them. Um, but she's really just an incredible woman. I mean, it's made me, I think, very good working with women because to, I, I worked for her essentially for many years. Uh, and you, uh, you gain, you know, it, it, there's people that I don't think work well with women because they don't, they don't know how, and they don't respect women and they don't, uh, they've never worked for somebody. So they don't have a sensitivity to that. Which is and mind boggling because everybody has moms, but okay. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. That's true. Um, but, and she was just a great boss and she really taught me a lot about managing people. She's an incredible manager of people. She's very disciplined. She's much better than I am at that. I'm more of a creative type, but she really um, inspired me uh, to be more focused, more disciplined in what I do. And that actually helped me recently to get books written because that requires a lot of discipline. And you know, she was on me to spend a couple hours every morning before work, getting them done, pushing them out, um, you know, being disciplined in your work was something she really instilled in us. What you said she was a really, she is a really good manager. What qualities yeah. do you think that she has that differentiates her in that role? You know, she has a talent for that balance between, she's not easy on people. I wouldn't say that. So it's not, you know, like the easy boss, oh, she's really easy to work for. She can be hard to work for. She's very demanding. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think she shows respect for people in a way that they become very monitor. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in my corporate office right now, and behind me, there's a staff of about 20 people where I think probably more than half of them have been with us for 20 years or more. I mean, we've got people here have worked here their whole careers. That says a lot. And, and she, I think, inspired that in them because well, managing people is very tough. I'm, not, I'm, I'm so inside my head that I'm not great at it. I think you have to be really uh, more focused on, you know, kind of watching over people in a way that I'm not good at. But she's great at that. Like, she's very good at kind of um, uh, giving them something to do, giving them some freedom to do it, but also watching over them to make sure they do it right. And that's, that's um, I think, a real talent. That is one of the hardest thing I, I do in my job. I know most people would probably the human say side the is the most important, mm-hmm. but yet the hardest, right? For sure. Yeah. And um, I'm one of those people who just wants to. I'll just do it. Like, I'll, all right, all right, give it me. I'll get it done. Like, but I, that's I'm not, sure not that, being I'm an effective manager. But that's <laughs> But it we, sounds we, like your we, role, your role is very um, plays to your strengths, right? Tell yes. us about your yeah. role specifically. I, I get to be called the chief creative officer of the company. And the reason I have that title is because my brother, Matt, who's technically younger than me, got to be CEO, chief executive officer. What? So when, when we sort of decided he should be the CEO because he's the better manager of people, he, I think, felt bad. So he said I could make up my own title. So <laughs> I did. Well, I'm really the creative one in the company. So let me be chief creative officer, which sounds nice. really cool and much more fun. And we have slowly divested me of any... Um, managerial responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> you really don't manage hey, anybody. Hey, you got to know what you're good at, right? Yes. I have, I have like a part-time know assistant. She's the only person that reports to me. <laughs> Everybody else reports to Matt. It's and amazing. I just hang out and do 
come up with ideas and cool stuff and systems and books and training programs and marketing ideas and things like that. And that's, I'm very happy doing that. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, if I can sit in my office and create stuff all day, that makes me very happy. If I have to go to meetings and manage people, it makes me very unhappy. Well, I love that you noticed that and your family supported you in that in that journey. And and talking about being creative, you wrote a couple books, yeah. uh, one of which I've read, Disruptors, Discounters, and Doubters. And then you have a new one out, uh, How to Be a Great Real Estate Agent. So tell us a little bit about the journey, how you came to write the first one and then uh, move into writing your second one, yeah. the well, the books had been in my head. I mean, the idea of writing something about the industry and about my training philosophy, which is all about focusing on other people's needs. My, my essential way that, that my, my essential training message for agents is be great at your job. Don't, don't worry about the sales. The sales will come. But if you learn the techniques of how do you help buyers and sellers, how do you work with people, how do you take care of them? And if you do that by focusing really expansively on what they need and then very creatively about how to give it to them, you'll be really good agent. And if you're a really good agent, you know what happens? The business comes. Um, and I, I started to work on that because I've been training that I've been speaking on that for years. I started to work on that, but I kept getting sidetracked by things that I kept seeing wrong in the industry, the stuff that was preventing agents from doing what I felt they needed to do. And I kept getting bogged down in that. And then I realized what I really need to do is split up the books, that I had two books in my head. And one of them was about all the things the industry needs to do. It's very sort of diagnostic about what's wrong with the industry and how the industry has to get better at what it does. And then have a second book. And the second book is focused on individual agents and what they can do to build their careers. Can you tell us a little bit about that writing process? I think I've, I've kind of like thought about that, not personally, but just how Ooh, do people- you're gonna write a book, no, Emily? No, 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 no. <laughs> just that process kind of um, is so mysterious to me. It's like how, first of all, you have a really busy career and you did this yeah. while you're doing a lot of other projects, of course. How, how does that process work for you? How it, did it, it work? It was very tough. I mean, I spent, there was several years that I, I had on my to-do list write a book. But the problem with putting write a book on a to-do list is that it's a great way to get everything else on the to-do list done. Like you're like, all right, I'm not going to work on the book. Let me go do this, this, and each cross off everything else. Right. And every day still on that list is how to write a book. It's really tough. And you really do, I think, need to put time aside. I'll tell you what happened to me, which was really kind of odd and lucky is that I was going uh, to the gathering of Eagles in Colorado, um, uh, Steve Murray's thing. And I was really excited to go. I hadn't been for a couple of years and I was gonna be gone from like Tuesday to Friday. And Tuesday morning I leave and I go to the airport and I miss my flight. I was late, it was, it was weather, there was all sorts of problems, I had traffic and I missed the flight. So I'm there literally in the airport and it's 8.30 in the morning and I'm gonna head back to my car and I, I, they couldn't get me to Denver. It just didn't make sense for me to go at all given what that was gonna happen. And so I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go back to my office and I'm gonna start checking email, like this is a disaster. And then I realized that my outbound message, my voicemail bounce back was on, my, my email, voicemail, everything was turned off. I'd, I'd had my getaway day, so I'd closed off every bit of open business on my desk. No one expected me for three days. Everyone thought I was gonna be out of town. And I said, you know what? We have a vacation home about an hour away from the airport. I'm just gonna go there and, and write this book and get away from everybody because nobody's expecting me. And I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew where I was. Everybody thought I was in Denver. And the only person who was my wife and I told her I'm going to be gone for a couple of days, but if you need me, I'm only an hour and a half away. Um, and I sat and I wrote for three days, morning till night, 
and I punched out about half of what became disruptors, discounters, and doubters about got done in that three day period. And then once I had that, I had momentum. I mean, so once that was done, I was coming in the office for an hour and a half every morning before nine o'clock to like work, just write for an hour, just write an hour every day, try to get five pages done, five pages done. Well, you get three to five pages done for a month and you've got 50 pages, 60 pages done. That's, that's what I needed to do. And so that was all kind of April of last, April of the year of 17. And the book came out at the end of 17. Uh, that book came out the end of 17. I spent most of 18 then writing how to be a great real estate agent. That's so, a yeah, lot so of discipline. That's great. That's I love how you seized an opportunity that presented itself. Right. That's to me the, a, a flight. Big yeah. Away. I mean, I got very yeah. lucky. I missed the flight and I wrote the book. And and I can't necessarily recommend. It. I I will say that the one thing is the idea that you turn everything else off, at least when you're trying to get started, because you need to get some momentum. You need the hardest thing about writing a book. I'll say this right now, or, or really doing any project is that first page is the tyranny of the blank page that it's getting started. And once you get something done, it just becomes, you get so much momentum. It's, it's like anything else. It, it's not just writing a book, but it's any kind of project that you're starting. It's the starting that's hard. Like let's it say is. there's an agent listening to this that for years has been told she has to build her database. She's got to get her contact man contacts into her contact management system. Got to do all that. And like, oh, it just seems like so, they're, they're everywhere. She's got contacts in her phone. She's got them on an old Rolodex. She's got them in a notebook. And the idea is just staggering. Like, you know, it's like building the subway system or building a pyramid. Like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And the way to do it is just to start. Block some time. Don't put it on a to-do list because that will never help. But block some time, three hours, four hours, a day, two days. You're preaching block to the out, here. And then do it. And then just sit and, and push it because then once you start doing it, it, it – creates its own momentum and it'll get itself done. That's something my husband always yeah. says is just chip away. Just, just chip away at it. So a it's journey like journey of a thousand steps. It doesn't have beginning. to be everything, right? Because I think that's what makes us procrastinate a For lot sure. is that I can't do it all right now. So I'm not going to do it at all. Or yeah. that sounds too hard. So I'm not going to start. Eat the frog. Eat the frog. I got, I got, I got, eat the frog. Like eat the frog. Yeah. yeah. First who, thing you do every morning, the eat the frog. Who was the one that came up with eat the frog? But I don't it's know, like eat the frog. The, do the worst thing you want to do all day, do it in the morning. And so just it's get done. it done. Got yeah. it. Got it. So Joe, I want to know, you know, writing these two books, you've had a lot, I mean, we had our entire strategic planning committee group read it. I mean, you've had a lot of people who I think you, you had a, a uh, somebody anonymously bought like a hundred of your books. What yeah. was the most surprising story that came out of this process and writing the book? I, you know, surprising. I, I would say that the, the, um, I hear, I hear, I hear there are two things that come out of this that I think are really interesting. One is I get a lot of people coming up to me to say about both books now, because they say it about the second book. Um, is I've always thought this and no, I thought no one else did. Like I get a lot of people telling me I didn't really, and they don't mean it as an insult, but they're like, I didn't really learn anything new from your book, but I felt validated in what I already knew. And that's a really cool thing. Like, I don't mind that. That's, that's someone saying to me that they felt alone in the way they thought about the industry that, you know, one of my core principles is the idea that real estate agents need to stop thinking themselves as just salespeople because their job is so much more than sales. And yet every training program focuses on sales and everything in the industry is so oriented so aggressively and, 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 and single-mindedly towards sales um, that 
they were, they were, they were shocked to hear somebody say what I say, which is that we have to stop thinking ourselves as just salespeople. Um, the other interesting thing that I get out of the book is I had someone come up to me and say about the disruptors book that, well, you know, I've heard people tell me that the real estate industry is going to get disrupted, that people are going to change it and it's, we're all going to go the way of the dinosaurs. And they've been telling me that for 25 years. And yet, I'm still doing business the way, and everybody else seems to be still doing the business the way they did 25 years ago, that the industry, you know, there's bells and whistles because of the internet, but for the most part, think about it. A, a seller, a listing agent takes a listing, puts it into MLS, takes a bunch of pictures, puts them out in the marketplace. It used to be done through books, and now it's done on the internet. There's a buyer out there. The buyer's working with the buyer agent, sees a bunch of properties. They make an offer. The offer's negotiated. Offer goes in a contract. And then contract to closing, mortgage, title, insurance, um, closing, escrow, settlement, et cetera, et cetera. He says it's exactly the same as it was 25 years ago. And I said, yeah, isn't that kind of the problem? Like, isn't that bad? <laughs> like, I understand you're saying that, like, why, why should I believe that things are going to change now if I've been, t I've been being told they've been changing for 25 years and they haven't changed? You know, it to me is an indictment of the industry that we're still doing things exactly the same way we did it 25 years ago with some more bells and whistles and some economies because of the way the internet works with e-signatures, some things like that. But like the basic structure of the industry has not been affected at all by dramatic seismic changes in technology. We're still doing things exactly the same way. That's not good. So in a dream world, what, what do you see as like the biggest change that could make this look different and kind of uh, revolutionize? Bring us 25 years into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I don't think you have to go that far into it, but I, the one thing I think that the real pain point of the real estate transaction is the mortgage. That's the part that, you know, when you look and you see the enthusiasm that investors now have and, you know, people like Brad Inman and uh, all the futurists of the industry have for the iBuyer type stuff, the idea that people are going to sell their home to an investor who's then going to either resell it or rent it out and they're gonna be able to close their home in three days. Well, they, you can, a realtor can close a home in three days if there's no mortgage involved. I mean, probably five days, but you can get it done in five days. If there's no mortgage, you can get a rush on the title. The title can get back. You can, if you're waiving inspections and things like that, that's what takes forever. Um, and that's the hardest part of the process from a buyer's perspective. And the seller feels powerless because they're just sitting around waiting for the buyer to get their mortgage. So if we could find some way to take the mortgage process, which can take anywhere from you know a couple of weeks to a couple of months, and it's fraught with just painful gathering of documents and repetitive uh, uh, doing the same thing over and over again, and then impenetrable instructions and things like that. And if we can make that better, that makes the whole transaction better because people like working with their agent. They like the process of buying a home. They like the buy, they like the shopping part of buying a home. And from the seller perspective, most agents, they most sellers, they hate when their home is on the market because it really stinks to live in a home that's for sale. It's it's like the week before your wedding. You can't eat anything. You can't live like a normal person. <laughs> everything has to be put away. Everything looking so good. It's so tough. But um, so people don't necessarily like having their home on the market. But they like their agent. They trust their agent. And then they go into contract and then everything goes really haywire. It takes forever and the whole, and that's all on mortgage. That's not on us. Well, what can realtors do to improve that 
opaqueness and that experience because I do agree with you I mean and part of that is a regulation and also part of the the process is about um, risk management right you like you don't want everybody to just waive inspections because what if you find a thirty thousand dollar problem with the house right I mean so part of it is risk and and being the fight being that fiduciary person that helps your seller not get sued after the fact but it but how can realtors really help improve the process today Uh, you know it's funny it's a great point and and it's almost like you want to say to the seller you know what you really shouldn't sell your house in three days. Like that's really not a good idea. It's that's not. not a good thing to do. Like no. you should give yourself some, you know, give yourself some time, find your market. There's lots of reasons that it shouldn't take six months, but also three days is probably a little too much on the other extreme. Um, the, and you're right that a lot of the reasons, a lot of the things that take time are there to protect people's rights. And that's those right. are good things. Um, you know, the banks, I, I think the banks are just very inefficient but the impulse the banks have, which is that they want to be careful about where they're lending their money, is obviously makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms certainly what we saw 15, 12, 15 years ago, uh, the banks are being a lot more prudent now. Uh, but that can sometimes take time. I think what can you do as a realtor? Um, I think there's a couple things. One is find the, the loan officers who have really good back office. Not necessarily the loan officer that buys your broker up in house lunches. Not necessarily mm-hmm. they're not even necessarily the mortgage person who is promoted within your office. Although, you know, as somebody who owns a mortgage company and a real estate company, I certainly want my agents to work as much as possible. <laughs> by Without violating company, any restaurant. The but they have a good back office. Pardon me? But but yours has a good back office that you obviously yeah, well, stand that's behind. The thing right? is that, you know, one of the reasons I want them to work with my mortgage companies is that if there's a problem. The mortgage company's right downstairs. They come up and they tell me and I'll try to fix it. Like, yeah. I can't get the head of Wells Fargo on the phone. They can walk up right here and talk to me about it and I'll make the problem go away. But let me not get astray. The point is, find a really good loan officer who's got a really good back office. Not necessarily the, the loan officer isn't as important as the processor working or the underwriter working with that loan officer. So find someone who's got a really good team so that you can get through that process a little easier. Second thing you can do is really prepare your clients for it. The first time you take a buyer out is the first time you talk about mortgage stuff and you tell them, start collecting your, all your bank statements, start collecting all your pay stubs, start, uh, don't go do anything that on credit, don't go open any new credit accounts, don't quit your job, don't do anything stupid. Um, you know, that process starts now and be prepared, Mr. Buyer, that this process can be really difficult. So when we get there, I want you to get through it as easily as possible. And this is, we'll start preparing for that process. Now you're going to be buying a home. So start preparing for that process. And it's the same conversation you have with the listing side where you say to the seller, when you're trying to get them to stage their home, to say to them, listen, you're going to be moving, right? But why don't you start right now? Let's start right now. Let's go get you a, a uh, storage space and let's move half of the crap that you own <laughs> into the storage space because then when you move three months from now to your new home, it'll be so much easier to pack up what's in the house and then you just take everything in the storage space and you move it to the new house. If you're going to move, start right now. If you're going to get a mortgage, start right now. That's what that's what agents can do. And I think that that is a huge part of what realtors do is set the expectation and of move what, things forward. Yeah, yeah, and the timelines. I think that's a really good point. I think one of the most important thing agents do is they educate their clients about what they, what to expect. And the exactly. really good agents are really really great at explaining the process and prepping their people for the process and 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 holding their hands throughout it. I mean, that's one of the most important things we do. Yeah. You know, it's for both our buyers and our sellers. That's right. So I'm, I'm pretty fascinated with the fact that you work with your entire family. 
Yeah. And so tell tell me tell us what the best and worst parts of that is because I think that's a really interesting dynamic you have. I want to sing. It's a family affair. I can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, my mother started the company. I have three brothers. We're we're all at we're, three of three of the four of us are in the business now. The other brother was in the business until a few years ago. So I've worked with all of them. The best part about it, um, without question, is the trust that when you're working with a family member, and I guess not every family is like this. Our family happens to be like this, and I think a lot of families are that. I know they have my back, and I got their back. That that yeah. you know they, they're always coming first. I'm never going to do anything to elevate somebody else's interests above the interests of someone in my family. That's the best part. Um, and I think that that we are lucky because I you know there have been I've seen family businesses that have gone very badly because of the way that the um, the, the the relationships that are there. But our relationships are good. In fact, my relationship with my brothers is so much better than it was when I wasn't working with them. Um, that we have so much because we have more to talk about. We have more in common. Like. Yeah, we you know, see each other more. So more yeah, um, yeah. The the worst part, I would say, um, uh, I would say the worst part is that it's difficult to. We don't we don't really vote on anything. Everything's kind of done by consensus, and everything's done by the person who feels most passionately about it usually gets their way. Yeah. So if I really want to do something. And the other, the others don't. But I feel really strongly about it. I'm probably going to get my way because there's sort of a, there's sort of a um, bias toward action if there's somebody really passionate about it. But Which there's means al- that- also trust. Yeah. Right? If well, you're really passionate them. about it, your brothers and your mom trust you that that maybe even though I don't believe it or whatever, that that may be the right choice. I think it's trust, and there's also the you know this feeling, the feeling of saying okay. You're, you get your way, but now it's on you. Like, isn't that like a nice thing <laughs> to cutting. say? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know? That's the this opposite. That's a flip coin. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If, it, if it goes badly, we know exactly <laughs> who we're going to play. Right. Um, there is a lot of that. And there is a lot of the, you know, I'd rather do it your way since you're so passionate about it and then be able to blame you when things go wrong <laughs> than not do it your way and have you bitch about the fact that you didn't get to do it Because <laughs> right. in a family, you never hear the that's end a, of it, right? That's a family well, dynamic for that's you. That's a very family dynamic. And, yeah. it's, and it is something that I, I do think that we're unusual that we do work really well together. And the thing I think if I were to give anybody, I always tell people, they ask me for advice, but if we're starting a family business, we're working together, because you see a lot of agents that want to yeah. you know, gun with their family member. The um the most important thing is everything gets split equally. That's cool. Once That's we really get once you get full partnership, everything gets split equally. We are extremely fair about the money, and the money is what causes people when Definitely. when when there's inequity. Partnership breaks up when people fight about money yeah, and that's right. and when they feel they're being taken advantage of, and that's and that's true about any partnership. Absolutely. So in in advice to somebody who's thinking about starting a business with their family, yeah. get that out right away. What a, what other advice besides the money? Besides making sure you split the money. Um, I think you what we have done is you need to have clearly defined zones of authority. That it may be that it's a hierarchy that, you know, like you see these family businesses where there's like the uh, like I'm thinking about like a woman started in the real estate business and she brings in her daughter or her son and they work for her. There's a very clear line of authority there mm-hmm. and that's good. That's what it should be. And there's an idea of there's a secession plan down the line and you got to set that on make very clear what that's going to be. And you have to be very clear about how the money's going to be divided. That's, that's important. But I think 
if they are going to be equals, people like working together, like in a, in a, like a brokerage and, um, like for a long time it was, I, you know, I did legal and I did training and I did a few other things and Matt ran the real estate company. And now Dan, my brother, Dan runs the affiliates, Matt runs the real estate company and I'm just chief creative officer. And I work for myself basically on the outside of it all. Um, and that's important because like, you know, Matt doesn't rewrite my book and doesn't come and get involved in training and tell me what to train and things like that. He, I don't tell him who to hire in the management of the company or things like that. He, it comes from me for my opinion, but it's his decision. And Dan runs the mortgage, the, the mortgage and title and insurance company. And, and everybody's got their area of responsibility. And we all make the big decisions together by consensus, like I said, but like, you know, you have primary authority for what you do and you, you know, so it makes you responsible for it. Everyone's clear lines in their lane. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's lane, important. Yes. Lane's a good way to think about it. Everyone's got their lane and they stay in their lane for the most part. So thinking back to when you started out in the business, what would be some advice you'd give yourself or something that you wish you knew then that you've learned the hard way? Um, I think I, I'll say this. I think that, when I started, um, I was a little too confident in my own judgment and which is to say that, which is, a, which, which is a fancy way of saying that I thought I, 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 knew <laughs> and I thought I was too smart for what I was doing. Um, and I think that you were that a lawyer first. Right? I was a lawyer. Yeah. I was, a, I mean, I, you know, that, think about it. I came in, I was a lawyer. I was a law professor. I came in and I'm working as the general counsel for a real estate company. There was a certain arrogance I think I brought to that, that I know how to do these things and you know, I'll know how to do them better than anybody else and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, um, that I, I had to learn to be a little bit more open to experience. You know, I had to be, I had to learn how um, uh, you're always learning. You're always, you know, you never know everything. And, and I think I'm much more humble today about, about what I know and what I don't know. And that's made me smarter and better is the, is to be have an open mind about things that uh, that I might be encountering. Was you know, there I, was there a experience that led you to that humility? I think it was just a gradual. No, there's no there's no key moment. There was no epiphany. Oh, I think it was more on. of a gradual transformation. <laughs> you know, I had a story about some comeuppance that I went through, um, and and how I learned from that. Um, but I but I think it, it's more of the. You know, we, we had a really successful, we, we were really successful through a long period of time with the company. And then we ran into a rough patch right around when the market changed in 2008. And we really had to work very hard to hold, to get through that. Like a lot of companies did. A lot of companies didn't make it through 08 and 09. Um, right. And we did. And I think that made us stronger and made us tougher that, you know, we made good decisions during that period, but we made some bad decisions leading up to it, which left us vulnerable when the market turned on us. So I think that, being being cognizant of what you don't know is, I think, an important lesson that you learn in any kind of leadership capacity is to know what you know and, and be aware that there's things that you don't know and don't assume that you, you know what you're, what you're doing. So take the ego out of leadership. Yeah, yeah ego, I, I'm a big believer in that. I really am. Yes. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would be your dream job? I, you know, if I weren't doing I'd be I'd be writing and speaking which is what I do now. So I, I just You're doing your dream stuff. job. Congrats. I think that I've worked. I mean, I've been very lucky that I work in a, the I have a successful company. I work with people I love and that I trust. 
Um, and they've given me freedom to start doing the things as we, I gradually replaced myself. That's, that's what you need to do as an entrepreneur is you gradually try to build the company and scale it up big enough that somebody can start doing the parts of the job that you hate and you can only do the parts of the job that you like. Um, and it's only really in the last year that I really, as I said, divested myself of a lot of these, um, uh, the things I don't like, the legal part of my job, the management part of my job, the day-to-day -day rigmarole of the job. And I get to think about big things. I get to write, I get to speak. I'm doing a lot more speaking now. Um, I've gotten the two books down. I'm working, I'll be working this year on some other projects. Um, and, and I like doing that. If I wasn't doing it in this, I'd probably be doing it on my own. I'd probably be, be writing and speaking more about general business practice rather than real estate focus. So looking forward and, and I want to tap into that, you know, creative mind and, yeah. um, that perspective, we have a lot of broker owner listeners as well. So thinking about the industry and um, where it's headed and what we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis with the headlines and this, that, and the other thing, where, where are we going and what advice would you give to, you know, some of the bro smaller broker owners that are struggling or, or worried about where they'll be in the next five years? Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it, yeah, that's a, that's a good question that, you know, what, the, 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 the value proposition of the broker has generally been narrowing under adversity for the last 15 to 20 years. That what you've seen is you've seen the rise of brokers who uh, charge less to the agent and do less for the agent. And they have created, to some extent, a, an environment where agents choose their broker in many cases, and, and more of a tendency to choose them on price rather than what we, what we think of as value. So as a, as a broker, it's not necessarily the most fun part of the job to say, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do less and less and charge less and less until I'm basically doing nothing other than housing these people and charging them $4 a month to work here. And taking all the risk. Be, and taking all the risk of all, that's, that's not, I mean, that's a, that's a different job than the one that brokers have traditionally had, so it's very tough. I would say this, I would say, what I always tell brokers is, is the way to think about it is that every dollar a broker makes gets put into one of three buckets. There's the big bucket, that's the bucket that these days goes to the agent, that's the biggest bucket of all. Then there's a smaller bucket that's all the expenses of the company um, and all the expenses that are borne by the broker. And then the last little bucket, practically a thimble, is the profit that the broker gets to take home, all right? Your job as a broker is to make that middle bucket as small as possible, narrow your expenses as much as possible, so you can put more money in the agent's pocket and more money in your pocket. And that's the central challenge of how do you do that in a way that you can still recruit and retain. And I think the fundamental watchword for me that I've always told, they, I'm gonna, when I go and I speak to brokers about this stuff, is I say, find out what your agents value the most and only pay for that. Don't pay for stuff they don't value. Don't pay for stuff that you think is really cool to have you know, I would love to go buy iPads for all my agents, but you know what? I, I, they'd much rather have another quarter point in split than me buying iPads for all of them. And if they want an iPad, they'll go buy an iPad. They, right. they make that decision for themselves. So there's things that I would love to do that I can't do because I can't be competitive, pay the splits that I need to pay in my market, um, and do everything that I would like to do as a broker. So I have to prioritize. And that's what every broker has to do is they have to find their, what value are they going to provide and then provide that value, but don't do anything extraneous to that. Cool. Don't waste money. 
So what excites you about being a leader in today's industry? You know, the industry is facing so much change. I think what has, has made me very, what's inspired me and given me some real happiness in what I do is that I firmly believe in this industry. I believe in the agents. I believe in the brokers. I, I think that we provide a value. This is, this is the message of disruptors, discounters, and doubters. I, I think we provide real value to the American people. I think that we've helped uh, sustain a asset class, an asset class that, that I think has helped so many Americans um, uh, uh, retire with in, in dignity and in comfort because they bought a house and they maintained the house and then they sold the house and we sold it, we helped them buy it, we helped them sell it and they made enough in that house that they were able to retire and live well. And by cooperating with each other through MLSs, through associations, um, brokers and agents have created a market for real estate that has I think it's a transparent and efficient market that helps real estate attain the highest possible value that it could have. And I think that's a good thing that we do. So I'm proud to be part of that. And I'm proud about the fact that I wrote a book which are asserted that and says, you know what? Let's stop being self-conscious about ourselves, about the commission we charge, about the value we provide. Let's get better at what we do. Let's be proud of what we do and let's stop trying to Let's stop getting scared every time there's some discount broker that comes in like, oh my God, they're gonna take over because they charge less than me. Well, you know, those companies have, don't have a great track record of sustaining, you know? Uh, they don't have a tra good, good track record of, of holding their value. And I would say that's sort of the same message I would say to brokers, which is that, you know, we've had a skinny down, we've had a skinny down, we've had a skinny down, we all have. But there comes a point where you say, okay, that's enough. I do provide value to my agents and I deserve to get paid. Like, right. I mean, I've had conversations with my agents where I'm like, listen, at the end of the day, I got to get up in the morning too. Like, if I'm not going to make any money, there's no reason for me to come into the office and work. I might as well just stay home. So, I mean, this, uh, I, I got to, there has to be some incentive for me to come here and help you. And, and I think that agents respect that. And I it's a realistic it expectation. Yeah. That's real. Yeah. That's just That's being right. real. That's right. You think it is, but you'd be surprised at how many agents are, 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 are happy to to just think, you know, that, that they're not, they're not cognizant of the fact that, well, listen, if I'm paying you all of this and I'm paying for all these services that you like and the value, there's nothing left from it. Yeah. Why am I right. here? Right. Well, we want to kind of close down and ask you some fun, rapid fire, ah. one answer questions. So oh if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Living or dead. That not personally, I know not, not somebody. It could be famous. anybody. Yes. Well, if I could have dinner with anybody, I'd have dinner with my dad who died seven years ago. I mean, I would have dinner oh. with my dad with anybody else than in the world. I'd have dinner with but my mom too. Yeah. Other other that's than sweet. that, and that's I didn't mean to bring us to that's a downer, right? It's so I'd sweet. I'd probably, yeah. you know what? Someone dead, I would have dinner. I've always been fascinated by Abraham Lincoln. I would have dinner with yeah. Abraham Lincoln. I think yeah. he's really yeah. interesting. That'd be a Classic fun dinner, person. an interesting um, dinner. Anybody living. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think a lot of, uh, Barack Obama, I think he was, uh, I think he's a really interesting person as well. Um, the, uh, I might have dinner with Donald Trump cause I think that'd be a fascinating dinner. I mean, it'd be really interesting. So what is on your nightstand? Uh, right now on my nightstand is a, a book that breaks down the recording of every Beatles song that was ever recorded. Cool. And I've been Ooh. working my way through that song by song, every night as I go to bed, I listen to a song or two and then I read the recap of who wrote it, how they recorded it, the whole That's story. Fun. It's a really 
I can't remember the name of it, but it's a really thick book. It we'll drop like it in the we'll drop it in the notes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's a great last book. one. Last one. How do our listeners buy your book? Your Amazon. Books. Books. My books. You can go on Amazon. If you just go, they're on Amazon. They're on BarnesandNoble.com. They're on most places. Books are sold. Cool. They're distributed. Uh, just look for, just search for my name, Joe Rand, and you'll find them. Boom. Uh, and I would appreciate buying them. I, I, I certainly like selling them. So, uh, and, I lo- and I love feedback. You can always find me at JoeRand.com. Find me on Facebook uh, as Joseph Rand. Um, and I'm always happy to friend people. I'm always happy if people have questions about the book. I, I get them all the time, and I love getting it. It's cool. I have it, listeners. Thank Reach you out so to much. Joe. Thanks for your time today, Joe. It's fun talking to you. It's been my pleasure very much. Joe's such a good guy. He is. He's. Yeah. Um, I love his creativity and kind of he's very a refreshing, you know, yeah. um, conversation for sure. Yeah, yeah. The more I get to know him, the more I love him. As always, thank you for listening to Real Estate Leaders and Legends. I'm Sarah Sudachan. And I'm Emily Horn. And please subscribe to our podcast so we can do this with you every other week. That's right. And uh, we hope that we gave you the inspiration and information you need to thrive in your real estate businesses. And we love hearing from you. So please rate and comment. We do read them. There are two and we've read them over and over. So <laughs> That's right. do it. Uh, see you next time. And until then, keep, keep leading, leading, legends. legends. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>